Welcome to Winston & Strong's Competition Corner Podcast, designed for businesses operating in the U.S. and elsewhere to better understand hot topics in United States antitrust law. I'm your host, Molly Donovan. Today's episode will be of particular interest to companies based outside the United States and U.S. companies with operations outside the United States because we'll be discussing a statute called the Foreign Trade Antitrust Improvements Act, or FCAIA for short. The statute was enacted in response to uncertainty about when the Sherman Act could be applied to conduct that occurs outside the U.S. However, the uneven application of the FCAIA in U.S. courts has been confusing for businesses that need to know as a practical matter how and why its foreign trade could give rise to U.S. antitrust violation. So that's the question I wanted to explore today. And to do that, with me is Ian Papendick. Ian is a partner in our San Francisco office at Winston & Strawn. Ian has lots of experience representing companies around the world in antitrust, cartel litigations, and government investigations. Um, Ian handles complex and class action litigation through all stages, um, from pleadings, discovery, through trials and appeals. And Ian joins us today to share his insights on the FTAIA and the extraterritorial reach of U.S. antitrust law. So, Ian, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Molly. Of course. Um, well, to get started, um, can you give us a big picture overview of the FTAIA and what it aims to do? Sure. Uh, so, as you mentioned, the FTAIA is a federal statute in the U.S. that was meant in, in part to resolve the question of when the Sherman Act can be applied to conduct that takes place overseas, meaning, meaning outside the U.S. The Sherman Act is the U.S. Uh, federal U.S. statute that, among other things, prohibits agreements that unreasonably restrain trade. And horizontal restraints like price-fixing agreements among competitors are unlawful under the Sherman Act, but also vertical restraints like exclusive dealing arrangements between manufacturers and distributors can also be deemed unlawful if they unreasonably restrain trade. And, of course, the, the Sherman Act is used for both criminal and civil enforcement purposes. And personally, I've seen the FTAA raised as a defense in, in many class actions and other private actions seeking damages for cartel behavior. And how about mergers? Does the statute have any application there? It does. The DOJ and the FTC in their Joint Antitrust Guidelines for International Enforcement and Cooperation have said that they'll apply the same principles of the FTAA and extraterritorial limitations when they make enforcement decisions concerning mergers or acquisitions involving foreign trade or commerce. Okay, understood. Um, let's get into the language. What, what does the FTIA say just on its face? So the actual language of the statute is confusing, but I'll, I can break it down. What it basically says is that the Sherman Act cannot be applied to foreign trade unless the foreign trade either counts as import commerce or has a direct, substantial, and reasonably foreseeable effect on U.S. commerce and the defendant's conduct gives rise to a Sherman Act claim. Uh, this latter thing is called the domestic effects test or the direct effects test. And there's also an export exclusion, which applies to export commerce from the U.S., but that's outside of what you wanted to focus on today, Molly. Right. So I did want to focus on sort of what I'll call the first two prongs, import commerce or the direct um, effects test being the second prong. 
And and both of those prongs have gotten confused. So I've been thinking that the easiest way to try to explain the FTAIA's application might be through a hypothetical. So Ian, can I give you some hypothetical facts and then you can give me your views on how they would shake out under the statute? Are you game for that? Yep. Okay. Um, so say there are competing leather producers in Europe that get together and agree on the price of their leather that will be sold around the world. Um, company I is an Italian entity and company I is one of the conspirators. It ships all of its leather within Italy, but some of the leather is paid for by customers in the U.S., which company I builds in the U.S. And leather, naturally, is a primary component in shoes. And let's say shoes get made primarily in Italy and then are sold around the world, including to consumers here in the U.S. So first, in terms of the FTAIA, can the DOJ bring charges against company I under these facts? Yes, uh, I think you mentioned that company I uh, invoices customers in the U.S. for sales of price-fixed leather, and the shoes made from the price-fixed leather get sold all over the world, including the U.S., so that certainly could qualify under the FTAA's domestic effects exception or, or the import commerce exclusion, and the DOJ can prosecute company I and its employees involved in the conspiracy. Uh, it's also important to keep in mind that the DOJ may pursue an investigation an enforcement action, even where only a small portion of the defendant's overall global commerce uh, touched on the U.S. Okay, so you said this situation could qualify under either prong, um, including the import commerce exclusion. So why don't you go ahead and tell us more about what the import commerce exclusion is? Sure. Uh, so there's no consensus over what the import commerce exclusion uh, provided in the FTAA uh, means in all situations. But the classic example of import commerce is a transaction between an overseas defendant alleged to have participated in a cartel and a plaintiff purchaser in the United States. In other words, let's say that company I price fixed leather with its competitors in, competitors in Italy, and then company I itself sold leather to leather distributors operating in the U.S., that would be import commerce. But beyond the classic situation of the conspirator uh, selling directly to a purchaser in the U.S., there's a lot of disagreement. Some courts consider who imported the products to be relevant. So some courts have said that if the conspirator first sells the product outside the U.S. and has nothing to do with, the, with its importation, that is not import commerce. But, but note that even in that situation, the domestic effects exception to the FTIA could still apply to bring that conduct within the scope of the Sherman Act. But other courts disagree and have said that conduct involves import commerce if the conduct merely targets or is directed at a U.S. import market, even if the defendant, the conspirator, did not sell the product itself into the, into the U.S. And the DOJ has taken the position that where conspirators merely place the product into the distribution chain that eventually leads to the U.S., that can possibly count as import commerce. So the bottom line is that there's a risk that a U.S. court, in at least some jurisdictions, would say that if the conspiracy was directed at or otherwise discussed or targeted products destined for the U.S., it qualifies as import commerce and the Sherman Act can be applied. 
All right. Um, let's get back to the original hypothetical for a second. Um, you said the DOJ could bring charges. Um, what about the U.S. companies who were billed and paid for the leather? Can they bring Sherman Act claims against Company I? Yes, they can. And that's true even though the leather itself left Italy only after being transformed into a completely different finished product? Yes, let me explain a bit. Uh, as I said before, in response to your question about the DOJ, commerce and products that are sold and shipped to customers in the U.S., as well as products that are billed to customers in the U.S. but shipped elsewhere, and products that are shipped to the U.S. but billed to entities outside the U.S., okay, can be uh, actionable. So here, the leather was billed to U.S. customers, and that could be actionable under U.S. antitrust law and the FTAIA, even if Company I actually delivered the products to an address in Italy. And when I'm saying build, I mean invoice. The the, the conspirator sends the invoice for for the for the products to uh, a, a company in the U.S. Okay, understood. Let me add some facts. What about a company in the United States that has Italian subsidiaries or affiliates? that make shoes, and those subsidiaries bought the price-fixed leather and then made the shoes in Italy, um, or the U.S. company hired a third-party contract manufacturer in Italy to purchase the leather and manufacture the shoes on its behalf. But again, all of that activity takes place in Italy. Um, can that U.S. parent company sue Company I for the injury that its Italian affiliates or its contract manufacturer incurred? So this is a trickier question, and the devil is in the details. Some courts in the U.S. have indicated that this may be import commerce if it was the purchaser that imported the product into the U.S. Other courts have indicated that it would not be import commerce if it was not the defendant itself that imported the products into the U.S. So claims based on that commerce would, would only be actionable if both uh, the domestic ex effects exception test to the FTAIA, FTAIA and the exception and an exception to the rule against indirect purchaser claims, the Illinois BRIC doctrine are met. And I'm sure that you, Molly, will, ha will cover or have covered the Illinois BRIC doctrine in another podcast. But as to the FTAIA, in practice, litigants will almost always argue that both the import exclusion and the domestic effects exception are satisfied. Okay, well, good good idea for an upcoming podcast episode um, about Illinois Brick. Um, oh, but but for now, um, I want to get into the the direct effects prong a little bit more. Um, if you can tell me sort of big picture what constitutes a direct, substantial, and reasonably foreseeable effect on U.S. commerce that would satisfy this prong. There's no consensus among courts of what the meaning of direct is. Some courts have held that an effect is direct if it follows as an immediate consequence of the defendant's activity without deviation or interruption. And, that, and that's a quote from the Ninth Circuit case. So arguably, under this view, there cannot be a long chain of uh, numerous intervening steps between the price-fixing conduct on the first sale and its later entry into the United States. 
So, for example, an agreement between an American company and a foreign company to ban the foreign company from selling specially modified tomato seed did not have a direct effect on U.S. commerce under the FTAA. The U.S. government had challenged this agreement as illegal under Section 1 of the Sherman Act, alleging that it could possibly delay innovation. But the court found that the alleged injury was not the immediate consequence of the banned sale because it was speculative and depended on uncertain intervening developments. And ultimately, there may not be any new innovations. And, and that's the Ninth Circuit case that, that I was quoting from, from earlier, uh, which is called uh, LSL Biotechnologies. Courts and other circuits have used a broader proximate causation standard, which allows for more conduct to have a direct effect. Uh, this is a quote from a case. Direct, direct means that the injury is within the reasonably proximate casual <laughs> causal nexus of the anti-competitive behavior. And, and there are a couple of courts uh, in the Seventh Circuit and Second Circuits that, that apply this standard or, or, or a similar standard. And under this view, as long as the entry into the United States is reasonably close in time or circumstance to, to the initial sale of the price fix good overseas, the later sale in the United States is within the reach of the Sherman Act without any immediacy necessary. And the DOJ also supports this standard. So let's move on to the term substantial in the direct effects test. What does substantial mean according to courts in this context? FTIA cases don't generally turn on the question of how substantial the effect must be. However, courts have addressed the substantial prong in cases involving price-fixed components of consumer products when considering the relative cost of the component as a percentage of the finished electronic product cost. For example, in the capacitors antitrust litigation, the court observed that capacitors are tiny parts that cost pennies or less to buy and are unlikely to be a substantial cost component of finished products even when used in volume. That's a quote from, from a decision in the passage case. And in contrast, in discussing the uh, LCD panels cartel, the court noted that the screens were a substantial cost of the computers and phones in which they were installed, and it was well understood by the cons conspirators that substantial numbers of these finished products were to be shipped to the United States at inflated prices. Uh, and for the purposes of, of the hypothetical we've been talking about, I, I don't know the cost of leather relative to the cost of a finished shoe. <laughs> that, that's okay. I won't ask you that. Um, so let's turn now to reasonable foreseeability. What does that mean? This is another one that hasn't been litigated as much, given the overlap with the question of uh, direct effects. The DOJ and FTC have explained that they view this language as requiring an objective test so that they may still investigate or prosecute even if a defendant didn't actually know, meaning they didn't subjectively know or care whether its products were shipped to the United States. Courts have similarly found that the question is whether the alleged domestic effect would have been evident to a reasonable person making practical business judgments. Or, or as one court explains, the effect is reasonably foreseeable if it is the rationally expected outcome of the conduct that's been challenged. However, a special master in the capacitors case recently suggested that there's a mens rea requirement, meaning that it must be reasonably foreseeable to a defendant that its sale of goods at artificially inflated prices would be shipped to the United States. 
where there will be effects on U.S. commerce. So the bottom line is that there's no clear answer to this question. Okay, and the judge in the capacitor's case hasn't yet um, given his opinion on that, that special master's conclusion. Is that right? That's right, and it'll be very interesting to, to see if he rules uh, that this, this kind of subjective uh, knowledge requirement is in the FTIA. Right. Um, okay, so let's shift now to the gives rise to prong of the direct effects test. You said that the direct effect on U.S. commerce has to give rise to the Sherman Act claim. What does gives rise to mean? Uh, so on the private side, uh, first of all, it has to be the plaintiff's actual claim uh, and not just some generic claim that, that did not harm the actual plaintiff. And harm to a plaintiff's foreign subsidiary might not, not be sufficient in a civil case, for example. And the, the plaintiff's claim must be based on anti-competitive effects in the United States, which can make it hard for a foreign plaintiff or a foreign subsidiary of a U.S. company to satisfy the domestic effects exception. For example, leather suppliers around the world form global price fixing conspiracy that raises prices for leather sold in the U.S but also independently raises prices for leather sold across Europe. A plaintiff who purchased leather in the U.S. could bring a claim under the Sherman Act, but a company that purchased leather into Europe uh, could not bring a Sherman Act claim based on the harm that it suffered by paying an overcharge on that Italian leather in Italy. The Supreme Court has held that a foreign company cannot bring a U.S. antitrust claim for purchases outside the U.S. unless it can also show that there was a U.S. domestic effect, a higher, uh, higher U.S. prices that are the basis of the harm suffered by paying higher prices abroad. So under this standard, several courts have rejected theories based on global pricing by uh, defendants uh, raised, argued by plaintiffs who allege global conspiracies. Even where a plaintiff's U.S. pricing team allegedly negotiated a global price for its U.S. purchases as, as well as its foreign affiliates purchases abroad, the effects in the U.S. do not necessarily give rise to claims based on foreign purchases, if that makes sense. It does. Um, I have another question going back to my original hypothetical. Um, I'm wondering now whether a class of consumers who indirectly purchase leather shoes in the United States um, they did they did not buy the um, leather itself at all. Um, could they bring, let's say, injunctive relief claims against Company I under the Sherman Act or damages claims under state laws, um, even if the leather shoes they bought were first sold in Italy? So there's some uncertainty about this. The courts have found that indirect purchaser plaintiffs are not barred from bringing these types of claims even where the price-fixed products were made and first sold outside the U.S., but, but it's a harder claim to prevail on. Okay. Um, before we wrap up, I want to turn to timing considerations. When a case involves foreign conduct and foreign commerce, um, as a practical matter, when would a defendant raise the FTAIA as a defense? Application of the FTAIA can involve very fact-intensive inquiry, so generally defendants will raise it on summary judgment after there's been some discovery. 
But defendants do sometimes seek to raise it early in the case by moving for early partial summary judgment to try to exclude certain categories of foreign commerce because it can significantly narrow the damages claims at issue. The judge in the capacitor's case, for example, took this approach in an attempt to narrow the scope of the claims that would have, that would have to be looked at for purposes of class certification. And uh, there was also a decision recently affirmed by the Second Circuit where the FTA issue was determined even earlier at the motion to dismiss phase. In that case, the Second Circuit, Second Circuit concluded that the plaintiff had not plausibly alleged that the defendant's alleged conduct in Russia fell within the exception for conduct involving import commerce, and the claim was dismissed. So, unfortunately, there's no simple answer as to when it is best raised. It's, it's a case-by-case analysis. Okay. Um, as is all of this, it sounds like. But I, I want to thank you, um, and I appreciate you going along with my hypothetical. Um, that's all the time we have for this episode. Um, but this, I think this has been really useful for lawyers and companies to think about. It's my, been my pleasure, Molly. And, and if you hear of any Italian weather conspiracies, uh, please <laughs> give me a ring. I know these are complicated issues, and, and the stakes are very high for, for companies. And, and as we discussed, there's substantial uncertainty in this area, which, which because it, the law remains in flux. So it is a case-by-case analysis, and, and that needs to be done properly to assess the risk involved in, in any given situation. Okay, well, thanks again. And for our listeners, you can email me at mmdonovan at winston.com. If you have questions about um, today's podcast, this subject, or if you have an idea for a future episode, or just antitrust questions in general, um, thank you for listening.